Hello, my name is Andrew Gary, and welcome to Seismic Sound Off In Depth Conversations in Applied Geophysics. In this episode, I speak with Marguerite Melinda and Tiziana Vanorio on utilizing rock physics and geophysics to decarbonize the future. In this conversation, Marguerite and Tiziana highlight the role of rock physics within geophysics, short and long-term solutions to decarbonization, common misperceptions about decarbonization among the public and scientific community, how to increase geothermal energy, and much more. This is an informative and scientific conversation on modern and cutting-edge solutions to address the Earth's current needs. This episode is sponsored by TGS. TGS offers a wide range of energy data and insights to meet the industry where it's at and where it's headed. TGS provides scientific data and intelligence to companies active in the energy sector. In addition to a global, extensive, and diverse energy data library, TGS offers specialized services such as advanced processing and analytics alongside cloud-based data applications and solutions. For biographies and links to the articles, visit seg.org slash podcast. Tiziana will start our conversation. So the the title, I'm speaking with Tiziana and Marguerite, who both uh, we're co-authors on this article in April's The Leading Edge that we're speaking about today. And, th- and the title is Rock Physics and Experimentation of Decarbonizing the Future. I want to start the conversation kind of modeled after the start of this article. What is the role of rock physics within geophysics? Okay, so this is a great question. And uh, I could start with saying that Traditionally, geophysics has used methods to image the subsurface. This includes sending waves or electrical currents through the Earth's crust. An important aspect, however, that we need to emphasize is that geophysical imaging does not directly measure the actual rock properties of interest, but only parameters that relate to them. So whether it's porosity, permeability, the presence of fluids, or how they migrate in the subsurface, these are all fundamental properties that we must know when it comes to extracting fluid from the subsurface or injecting, storing them underground. So the role of rock physics, and in particular experimental geophysics, is to translate geophysical images into actual rock properties. To use an analogy here, We can think of any tools used in geophysics as any imaging tools that are used in medicine to probe our body. For example, CAT scan or MRI. But when the image shows an anomaly, we must relay a biopsy to examine the direct nature of what causes the anomaly. So through rock physics, we do a biopsy on Earth rock samples extracted from wells, which then allows us to interpret geophysical images. Now, this particular article explores both short and long-term solutions to decarbonization. Marguerite, could you provide a high-level overview of the solutions discussed in this article? Yeah, yeah. So in the short term, it's beneficial to start looking at transition energies. So in the article, we briefly mention natural gas. And then also we need to be looking at storage solutions. And in the article, we touch upon CO2 sequestration within the subsurface. And then in the long term, we want to really be looking at green 
energy solutions such as geothermal, which we highlight in the article, and then also storing CO2 in the long term. And so one method for long-term storage of CO2 is, is geomimicry or where we can start creating new materials that are cleaner. Yeah. And, and speaking of that, Tiziana, geomimicry, that was a new term for me. So what what is geomimicry? Yeah, geomimicry is the geological analog for biomimicry. Probably the public is more familiar with biomimicry, which refers to designing innovative materials from natural objects that exist in our daily life. For example, Velcro is an example which is inspired by plants. So geomimicry offers the opportunity to use earth materials and processes and clearly the chemistry that comes with it to design sustainable materials. So why this earth processes or earth materials are more sustainable? Well, water is present in the subsurface and is the only solvent. And especially under certain temperature, it's a powerful solvent which mimics organic solvents. So it's it's very water is very powerful. And then also the reaction can be performed with uh, environmentally benign materials, which are rocks. So that's why we we think that geomimicry can be eye-opening. And it's also fascinating because it allows us to work across disciplines and work together with engineers and material science, which give us also the opportunity to understand Earth better. Yeah, there's a, a lot of power in looking at nature for for turn, things like this. That's that's pretty neat. So th- this article is looking, you know, the title again, decarbonizing the future. Do you believe there are any common misperceptions about decarbonization among the public or the scientific community? Well, when I think of common misperception, especially among the public, two aspects come to mind. The first aspect relates to the idea that decarbonizing our future will come from a single solution, the solution of the century. But actually, the reality is that addressing decarbonation requires a diversified approach that relies on multiple technologies, which altogether will do no further harm to the environment. And also, they will need also to adapt to local conditions, whether are geological conditions or environmental conditions. The second aspect relates more to time and uncertainty, and both are inherent to the process of doing science. Science is about finding, finding out new laws and creating new knowledge. So this takes time And so adopting any new technology cannot happen by the flip of a switch. That would be really counterproductive because we we do science and uh, we discover new things, but there is always uncertainty that is associated to that. And uncertainty really stems from what we do not understand yet, which then lays the foundation for new research. So... We definitely have to be firm in demanding a change, but being firm does not mean being hasty in seeking or adopting anything that comes next because science requires testing. Yeah, kind of speaking of adopting new things, I I think a lot of people are familiar with geothermal energy or or the idea of it and how it might work, but I was pretty surprised to learn that it currently accounts for less than 1% of the electricity production in the U.S. Why, why, Marguerite, do you think that that is such a low number currently? 
Yeah, so right now, most of the current geopower, geothermal power systems, they exploit resources that are really just, they have heat and water that can flow through and rock permeability that allows for the energy extraction. Um, and that's really implemented in quite shallow reservoirs. And there are certain states within the U.S. that have really put more effort into their geothermal output, but it's still quite a low amount of output that we can get. There's definitely a lot more potential in, in deeper and hotter resources in the subsurface. So we, they, they need to be able to tap into that deeper deeper part in the, su- in the subsurface. Yeah, yeah. So they need to be able to go. So there are definitely deeper, hotter rocks. However, within these reservoirs, we might not necessarily have the rock permeability needed to flow fluids through and circulate fluids to heat up and to extract. And so that that means that we have to be able to go into those deeper reservoirs and create permeable uh, pathways to then cycle the fluid. And that's I think that leads to where the real potential is for geothermal energy within, especially within the United States. I know at Newberry Field, that's a potential field for enhanced geothermal. There are a few sites in Utah as well to really tap into this potential. Well, Tiziana, you kind of, you spoke at the, at the top here, you know, this is about experimentation. And within the article, there's kind of some unique ways that you come up with these experimental designs. So why do you believe this experimentation is so important in developing these methods? Well, experimentation is important because that's the first step to understand new laws. It's, uh, it's the way to innovate. So that's why we rely on experimentation. The only way to learn about something is to perturb a system and then observe it. So, so experimentation is really the basis. You know, Marguerite, we're talking about things that are going to really impact the public at large and, and our future. And, and so kind of what role should science play in helping the public understand what's at stake in developing these decarbonization methods you talk about in this article? I think back to what Tiziana had mentioned about really having like this diversified portfolio in decarbonization methods. And I think you need to have a diversified portfolio. And so each time you go and look at a different method, you have to understand what risks and benefits are associated with each method. So you can know, okay, how far should we, how far can we develop these methods and how can we do it in the safest, most responsible way? And so I think that's where science comes in as we as scientists, our job is to really illuminate those risks and benefits to basically do a, a cost-benefit analysis. And we, in doing so, we should also be communicating the assumptions that we make in conducting that science. We should be quantifying uncertainties as we're conducting our science. And we should be as open with the people who are actively involved in those decarbonization methods. So I think we're really trying to shed light on all of the pros and cons of each method as scientists. Tiziana, do you see the increased use of machine learning and science advancing the capability of decarbonizing the future? Well, this is an interesting uh, question. I mentioned before that any new laws start with experimentation. So machine learning, simulation, and also modeling 
can replace an experiment only when comprehensive background knowledge exists, already exists about the phenomena being investigated. But when it comes to discover something new, uh, when it comes to innovate or discover new laws, we need to, we must rely first on experimentation. Computer perform instruction we give them. So they do not think, they follow programming and this programming is what we provide them. So that's why experimentation comes first in especially when we are dealing with uh, a new technology. And, and decarbonation is a new technology. Uh, cutting down on greenhouse gas emissions involve not only rethinking our energy landscape so we can emit less CO2, but also involves studying how to reuse and chemically stabilize CO2 in new environments, whether it's the subsurface or new materials. So this is the reason why we have to rely on experimentation and to understand how chemistry affects physics and mechanics. If we store something new in the subsurface, or we use something new like CO2 to make new materials, we want to make sure that the new system that we have perturbed or created is physically and mechanically stable. Yeah, Marguerite mentioned earlier that we're, we're kind of at the forefront of, of understanding and, and moving forward on geothermal energy. Tiziana, would you say we're kind of there with machine learning as well, like not quite ready to use machine learning to its full potential in this space? We are there about machine learning can be, as I mentioned earlier, machine learning can be truly powerful as long as we know the laws and, and what we are dealing with. To, to just use an example, machine learning is being heavily used by many retailers to study our watching or reading habits. They collect data, which then it's used to predict and offer us, the consumer, what we might want to watch or read next. But the quick question here is whether the most meaningful prediction is the one that perfectly fits into an established pattern of watching or reading habits, or the one that results from a fortuitous finding which came out just by carefully searching. I'm sure there are books or movies out there that I might like, but I simply have never been exposed to. So I like to think of human brain as a complex system, as much complex as rocks. So searching and experimentation challenge us to look at the world in a different way. And this fortuitous finding is called discovery. So that's why experimentation needs to come before machine learning. Machine learning is a great tool it shows great potential as long as we know what we are dealing with. Yeah, this is, is for both of you. What method or which method or technique for decarbonization are you most excited to experiment and test? I'm very excited to learn more about um, the enhanced geothermal methods. Um, there's so much that we don't necessarily know about how different you know, rock lithologies might impact our uh, stimulation methods in the subsurface. There's so much we don't know about how different temperature gradients or how many numbers of stimulation cycles might might be most effective and like how how we do it 
safely and responsibly. And so that is something that I'm, I'm interested to explore more of. Uh, I'm excited about all, uh, all of these technologies. As I mentioned at the very beginning, we need to have a diversified uh, portfolio. So I'm leading my group and in, in, in thinking that clearly each of the students of my group will innovate and will contribute to decarbonization. I'm particularly particularly interested and excited about geomimicry, of course, because it's very new, but most importantly, because as I mentioned earlier, it gives, it gives us the opportunity to work with colleagues from different disciplines. And, and so I think it's really the interdisciplinary aspects that uh, can also help us to create new knowledge. Well, you both are on, on the forefront of some very exciting science, and, and this is a, a fascinating article with some essential and important ramifications for the future. And, and I kind of want to end on this last more general question to help the audience that they always like hearing from people like yourselves. You know, what is one piece of advice you would offer someone looking to succeed as a scientist? Yeah, I was just going to say, always, always stay curious and always stay motivated because sometimes you don't know exactly what you're looking for. And so you just have to continue to have this curiosity in you and you have to have the drive and determination to keep moving forward with that curiosity. And I think if you just kind of keep that out and just knowing everything will be okay. Like sometimes we get into these crazy scientific projects and um, (laughs) you almost, you get results that might really surprise you. And you're kind of like, okay, what, (laughs) what does this mean? Where do I take this? And so, like I said, just taking that curiosity and continuing to move forward and knowing that everything will be okay. Science is science and it has its own answer. So, (laughs) Well, the the answer that Margaret provided is a great answer. I think that people doing science and doing research must be curious and must be motivated. Many times we, we especially, this is valid for any type of research, but especially when it comes to experiments, many times we uh, feel that we make one step forward and and sometimes three steps backwards. That's really inherent of research. So we need to be perseverant. And that's a good quality that any scientist and any students who want to start this path must have. So be curious and be perseverant. Well, I have a, a very strong feeling that this that this will not be the last time we hear from from both of you in this research. Thank you for highlighting this article in April's The Leading Edge and look forward to see what future experimentations you all find out and what you discover. Thank you very much for having us. Yeah, thank you so much for inviting us, Andrew. Really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to SEG's flagship podcast, Seismic Sound Off. SEG produces these episodes to benefit its members, the geophysics community, and inform the public on the value of the science. To show your support for the show, please share this episode with a friend, colleague, or manager that would enjoy hearing this show. Your recommendation is the single best action you can take on behalf of SEG's podcast. 
Go to the website at seg.org forward slash podcast to find all the episodes and learn how you can subscribe for free directly on your phone. Original music by Zach Bridges. This episode was hosted, edited, and produced by Andrew Gary at 51 Features. The SEG podcast team is Ted Bacomjian, Jennifer Crockett, Ali McGinnis, and Mick Sweeney. Thank you for listening. This is Seismic Sound Off, signaling off.